I'm excited to get to share God's word with you right now. We have such a privilege to have God's word given to us and to know that. So I just pray that your heart is ready to hear, ready to receive from him. I think he has good things for us today. Those of you who are here last semester know that I have been working through a series of sermons that um, were centered around what I called bold moves that Jesus made. And I um, could review all of those for you right now, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. And the other thing I need to say is that I'm going to break out of the sermon series today and do something else. Um, the reason for that is time. I don't know if time is a struggle for any of you, but sometimes it is for me. Um, I know exactly where I want to go with that sermon, and I'm really excited to preach it, and I know where it's coming from in the text and all of that, but it was fresh material for me and a brand new sermon that I had to put together, and um, man, I have been struggling to keep up in the last few days. Um, So I'm going to fall back to a different sermon. I got to spend about four hours yesterday morning uh, working at putting this where I wanted it for you, for this audience. Um, This is not just regurgitation of an old sermon, but it does happen to be a sermon text that I have studied and preached multiple times, and that does help in the preparation time. So uh, we are still on the broader theme of disciple-making. That's where we're going today. That's where all of those other things were going, and we're going to stick on that theme, but in a different text. So I want to give you a story as we begin. It was early February 2010 when I was driving home from Portland from just attending a class at Western Seminary. And I was about an hour on the far side of Spokane when suddenly the water pump went out in my Jeep Cherokee that I was driving. So there I was, stranded on the side of the road, and um, wishing I was home with my family. And this was the days before I owned a cell phone, and so I couldn't call. I had no way of doing that. So I got my tools out. I've changed a water pump before. can do it again. Although the side of the interstate isn't exactly the ideal place to change a water pump. And so I began working on it, and I ran into one major snag, and that was on that vehicle to get the water pump off. I had to take the fan off. And to get the fan off, there's this big nut on the front of it that had to come off. And with the limited tools that I had in the vehicle, that was proving to be a problem. I spent about an hour wrestling that thing, trying to break it free. And in the process, I broke most of the knuckles on my fingers open and had blood all over my hands. And, but I finally was successful And I remember standing there on the side of the interstate holding the water pump in my black and bloodied hands. Stick my thumb out. I got to get a ride. I got to get to Spokane where I can go to a parts place and get a new water pump before they close. And I've got to then get back and get this thing installed before dark if I can. And I'd really like to get home. Nobody will pick me up. I'm like, I, I look like a nice enough guy, don't I? <laughs> and, and I've got a broken down vehicle right here, you know. Help. I'm not a transient somebody. 
Nobody. Nobody would stop. Well, I had seen a sign for a rest stop that was just a couple miles up the road. So I thought, well, start walking. So I started walking, still with my thumb out. Walk backwards, make eye contact with those drivers. You better pull over and, and get me, right? Nobody will stop. Walking and walking and walking. And you know how that goes in your head. You start praying, Lord, help, please. And then you start reviewing all the times when I was the driver who didn't stop and feeling just a little bit guilty about that. And, and you're tempted to start making those little deals with God that you know are really stupid, but you still think you might want to make one anyway. Like, I, I promise I'll pick up the next person I see if you just let somebody pick me up. No, that's really dumb. I know my theology is better than that, but wow, I really could use a ride right now. Finally, a minivan pulled over to pick me up. And I ran up there, and the sliding door on the side of the minivan opened up. And I surveyed the interior to discover that I would be passenger number eight in a seven-passenger minivan. <laughs> but, right, beggars can't be choosers. The woman in the seat, in the, the bench seat right there in the middle, scooted over to make room for me. Now, I need to describe a little bit of this scene for you. Um, this became a ride that was very uncomfortable for me. And I want to be gracious in the way I explain this, but so if I could scientifically describe the family who was inside, you need to use the word obese, okay? Now, there was three boys in the back seat, and they reminded me kind of of the movie Dennis the Menace when Mr. Wilson says to Mrs. I mean, sorry, Mrs. Wilson says to Mr. Wilson, weren't you a fat boy? <laughs> and he says, I was husky. All right. Three boys in the back seat. The woman who was in the front passenger seat was very, very large, and she was the mother of the three boys in the back seat. They were friends of the other families, so kind of two families. In the, and so the woman who was driving, who was very, very large, was then the daughter of the grandmother who sat in the far side over there and very, very large scientifically and I'm serious I, it's hard to describe this scene and then and then the daughter the granddaughter sat next to me and she was very very large and so the sprawling kind of obesity was making my spot very small and was really intruding into my personal bubble a lot and we had about an hour of driving to do I'm like oh lord okay Thank you for this ride. <laughs> so I spent the next hour in very close quarters to observe some interesting family dynamics. And I got to observe up close and personal the transmission of values from one generation to the next. I had three generations sitting in these seats right here. And it was, it was a very interesting, uncomfortable ride. The first thing to notice was the constant consumption of food. No wonder. But multi-generations. This is a generational thing that had been passed on. A love of chocolate chip cookies and soda pop and potato chips. And it was constant consumption of food the entire way. Um, not too long into there, I discovered that this was a group that loved music. 
and the radio was on, and suddenly it got cranked up because the song came on, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. <laughs> I, I have vivid memories of this. And they all started singing, all the women, loudly. <laughs> I'm going, whoa, not comfortable. Before going too far, we stopped so they could have a smoke break. And so there's two generations that got out of the van to smoke so that the young ones in the back didn't have to breathe their smoke. Interesting transmission of value issue going on there. Um, having heard the Lord's name taken in vain multiple times, I started thinking, how, Lord, do I bring Jesus here to this conversation? Would you help me? And so I began trying to start some conversation as we got back in and started driving again. And in the course of the conversation, I told them that I had, was returning from Western Seminary, from going to a class, thinking that maybe that would spark something. Often that kind of thing does. And lo and behold, they all praised me highly and started telling me about their church. Suddenly I was feeling very confused. The Lord's name is taken in vain, but these are faithful church-going folk. What's going on? And then the song, Oh Happy Day, came on, and it got cranked, and they all started singing along. Oh Happy Day, when Jesus washed, he washed my sins away. And I am really uncomfortable and really confused. And we finally got to Napa in Spokane, and they dropped me off with blessings on my life and ministry. And they drove away. And I was relieved to have some space. And I was left thinking about the transmission of values. And not just that one generation passes values on to the next generation, but the transmission of Christian values. What we proclaim we believe. What happened to that? It seemed to have gone very screwy in that minivan, in that family. So today I want to talk to you about this transmission from one generation to the next as believers um, on the positive side. And I want you to turn, if you would, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is getting underway, and he's been laboring to straighten out a number of problems in the church. One of the early problems he's dealing with is that there was divisions in the church. Remember, some were saying, I follow Paul. Some, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas. Others said, I follow John MacArthur. Others said, I follow um, Montana Bible College. Others said, I follow the trump card, Jesus, as if I'm so spiritual, right? But I follow Christ. And Paul is going, what is wrong? You guys are not against each other. Stop with this division stuff. And we don't have to unpack the whole discussion, but I'm going to have you jump in with me right in the middle of it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. 
So there's a lot of people out there that would have liked to claim guardianship of the Corinthians, who would have liked to come alongside you all and give you this guidance and will be your guardians in Christ. But Paul said that he was spiritual father to the Corinthians. What does that mean? Well, certainly some of them heard the gospel from Paul. In his missionary journey, he came to Corinth and he stayed there more than a year and a half. And he preached there. So certainly some of them heard the gospel from him. He was, if you will, directly responsible for their conception and birth into Christ. In that sense, he's their spiritual father. He shared the gospel with them. And to others, beyond that, Paul stepped in to model, to mentor, to train, to disciple these young Christians so that they would grow up to maturity in Christ. Acts 18 is where it tells us that Paul is there more than a year and a half. He invested full time, time and attention into these believers' lives. So he's their spiritual father. And so then we come to verse 16. Look what it says. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because I'm your spiritual father, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Stop right there. Some people think it was quite bold of Paul to say, imitate me. And in fact, those same people would probably be very uncomfortable with the idea of you or of me saying to another believer, hey, follow me, imitate me. Shouldn't we just imitate Jesus? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're not making disciples of Ryan Ward after all. We're making disciples of Jesus. Agreed. But Paul said, imitate me. I think the key to understanding that is if you were to skip ahead and you can, if you want to 1 Corinthians 11, 1, just a little later in the chapter, Paul will say there, follow me as what? You know this. What? Say it out loud. I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. It's not just a blind follow me. It's follow me as I follow Christ. So to the degree that you follow Christ, I think is the degree to which you can say to another person, follow me as I follow Christ. Is that making sense? So Paul wants the Corinthian believers to imitate him. Watch me. Do what I do. Observe my life. I'll show you. You're struggling with these various things, Corinthian believers. Here's what I want you to do. Imitate me. You watched my life the whole time I was with you. You know how I lived. Live that way. Imitate me. But now something very interesting and I think very wonderful happens in the text. So look with me at verses 16 and 17. I'll get a run at verse 17 with verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Verse 17, for this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Did you catch it? Imitate me, verse 16. For this reason, I am sending 
Timothy. Imitate me. Watch Timothy. Shouldn't it have said, imitate me? For this reason, I am coming. That's what it should have read. Paul, didn't you make a mistake? Imitate me. No, he said, imitate me. I'm sending Timothy for that reason. How is that so? How is it so that for Paul, it was just as good as going himself if he were to send Timothy? How can that be? Remember, I told you we're going to talk about the transmission from one generation to the next. Timothy was Paul's son in the Lord. Paul calls him that many times throughout Scripture. Timothy had so taken on the character of Paul and, as we can see, of Christ, that for Paul, then it was just as good to send Timothy as to go himself. He could have that much confidence in Timothy because Timothy would do what Paul would do. Timothy would say what Paul would say. Timothy would live how Paul would live, how Christ would live. Timothy had so taken on the character of Christ, ultimately, that Paul could send him. We have that saying. We say, like father, like son. Like mother, like daughter. This transmission from one generation to the next. And here's Paul, spiritual father of Timothy, like father, like son. I'm going to send Timothy. Imitate me. Watch Timothy. I think that two really significant things then are important for us to just anchor down at this point of our study of this text. Number one is that Paul had replicated himself in Timothy in a highly effective manner. There wasn't a sort of loss in the transmission process. Number two is that Paul knew who he was imitating. Those two things are anchor points for us at this moment in the text. I want you to think about your own disciple making right now. Do you see an obvious applicational connection to your own disciple making? You all know that I teach family development. I want to start thinking about application from right there for a moment. If discipleship starts anywhere, it ought to start in our own homes. After all, those are the people who live with us, see us 24-7, day in, day out, good, bad, and ugly. It's all there. If discipleship is going to start anywhere, it ought to start in our home. So I want you to think about your own family for a moment, the family you grew up in. Think about even more broadly, maybe, families you know that you've observed. Can you think of some families where there is godly generation after godly generation after godly generation? Can you all think of one of those? Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's somebody else's you've seen. Man, amazing. And, and then you think of the family on the other end of the spectrum. You can all think of the other families. Brokenness followed by brokenness followed by brokenness. And it's uh, a family history that's just littered 
with the carnage and wreckage of all the sin that's there. Some of you come from both of those kinds of families. Some of you can look back generations and see godliness that's been passed on to you. Some of you look back generations and see brokenness. And that's one of the really fun things about our family development class, isn't it? That we get to look at those things and evaluate that for where it is and what it is, and then say, where are we going from there, moving forward? I'm very thankful to have godly parents that invested in me. I know what value it is to be raised in a godly home. Why? Because I'm a recipient. I lived it. I got that heritage. But you know what? In my family, it doesn't go back that way for generation after generation. My grandparents on my dad's side were not believers. They were living far from the Lord. And God so worked in their lives when my dad was still young as a kid um, that both of his parents came to faith in Christ. And they began to change and grow in faith in Christ. And it was my dad's dad who then led my dad to faith in Christ a few years later. My mom was not born into a believing family. Her parents were not believers either when she um, was born. My grandmother on my mom's side comes from an incredibly messed up background. If you want to know a story that today would be a, a, a child protection services story where they would remove the child, that was my grandmother. Absolute, utter neglect. And she married my grandfather really young. They did not have anything founded on Christ at all. And yet God reached into that family and began to pull them out one at a time and rescue them from sin and save them until ultimately later, years later, my grandparents finally both came to faith in Christ down the road. When my mom was herself then a young mother married to my dad, she found herself struggling with a temper, struggling to know how to parent these young children that she had, and not really feeling like she could go to her own mother for a good example of that. And a couple of really godly women that were at Big Sky Bible College back then stepped into her life and began to mentor her in how to become a godly mother. And I'm pretty thankful for that. I don't know who all those women were, but I know that it changed my mother, and I know that that had a huge impact on my life. What I want for you to take from that is that there is incredible hope for those of you who sit here in this room in whose lives Christ has worked. He has brought you to faith in himself. He has rescued you out of darkness and has transferred you into the kingdom of light. And I don't, it doesn't, in that sense, matter where your background is from. It's not going to have to dictate your future because the grace of God is enough to take you and transform you and break chains and patterns of sin that were there maybe for generations in your life. And there is, there is great hope for that. And so as you begin to build a disciple-making perspective in your life, yes, it, it can start at home. And by God's grace, may all of you 
who have yet to even start families, and those of you who have already started families, raise them to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus. Those of us who've parented for a while, I think, would be the first to raise our hands and say, it's not always easy. It's tough. But God's grace is with us to do this. But by God's grace, not only can we do this with our own families, but, but God's grace allows then our discipling influence that to, to expand to others all around us. How do those generational chains and so forth get broken in, in families where ideally mom and dad should have been that wonderful role model, that godly example, and they weren't? By God's grace, surrogate parents, if you will, step in. Those people like they did for my mother to teach her how to raise her children in a godly way. Those people who are stepping into your lives I hope that you recognize the fact that you're here at Montana Bible College means that you're in a place where, where people are loving you and they're investing in you. And I personally can just say, I wish I could give every single one of you more. I wish there was more of me to go around, but there's not. I wish I could spend two hours a week with every single one of you. And I don't have that many hours in a week. That's why I'm thankful for we're on a team that's why I'm thankful for all of this staff and all of this faculty that's here. And that's why I'm thankful for all of those disciplers who are out there. Older students, people outside the MBC family who are willing to invest. Is it all perfect? No. Every one of us struggles and fails in different ways. But we love you. We want to invest in your life. And I pray that that investment is going to be uh, well received. You see, as we think of passing on from one generation to the next, I want to say with my own family, if we start there, someday, imitate me. Watch Gracie. Imitate me. Watch Caleb. And I want to be able to say to those I've invested my life in significantly, heavily been able to, by God's grace to invest in those few, I want to be able to say, imitate me, watch that person. I'll send you him. If, if he comes, it's just as good as if I were to show up. Probably better. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to be able to come to a point where we say, imitate me, watch Timothy, whoever your Timothy is. You and I know that our calling in Christ is to make disciples. That's a scriptural black and white, so clear, no interpretive question about it at all. Our calling is to make disciples. I want to say one more thing about the text itself, and then I want to spend a few minutes working at some application of this with you in as much practical way as I can. The last thing I want to say about the text itself is that Paul told the Corinthians to imitate him, but then he said, for this reason, I am sending to you Timothy. See, my question is, why didn't Paul just write a letter and call it good at that? 
He could say everything he wanted to say in the letter. He had the opportunity. But he sent Timothy. We define discipleship as intentional, directed relationship unto maturity in Christ. The letter is all about direction. Paul could give all kinds of direction in the letter. The sending of Timothy was all about relationship. You need a real-life person. Sometimes a letter isn't good enough. Sometimes you need to see it in real life. Sometimes you need to live it out with somebody in relationship. And I don't want to go down this road too far, but let me just suggest to you that that's what the perfect father and son did for us. God didn't just send us a letter. He sent us his son. He did more. He, Jesus, the exact representation of the father, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 stepped into our existence. More than a person just in the past, the Lord Jesus, I think we also need a person in the present. And and that's why Jesus in John chapters 14, 15, 16 talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit who he's going to send. He's not going to leave us alone. I will come to you. I will be with you. It's why he promises his presence, because the presence of the Spirit in his people is ultimately always working for our maturity in Christ, that we would glorify God in our life. And so he's given us himself. Okay, let's try to apply this to our lives. Where do we go with all of that? this whole imitate me, watch Timothy kind of business. I would say, number one, have you answered the call of God in your life to make disciples? I trust most of you have. Many of you probably have. But some maybe are sitting here right now going, I guess I never really thought about that. I mean, I guess I always sort of knew maybe that it was God's desire for Christians to make disciples. But have you ever just said yes to God? As in a bold Yes, Lord, I will. If you want me to make disciples, I will. Maybe this is your day just to do that. Take a step and say, yes, Lord, I will seek to be obedient in my life to your calling that I be a disciple maker. Scripture tells us that we are to be a Christian first. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, <laughs> not second, not third, seek first. We're to be a Christian first. And I'm making that point because I think that in, in Christianity, even broadly right now in our culture, it's not always Christ first. It's very often career first, and then, oh yeah, and I'm a Christian too. It's often make money first, And then, yeah, but I'll also seek Christ. I'll be a Christian in the workplace, yes. And I'm not trying to say that you can't be a Christian in the workplace. Don't hear me wrong. But it's Christ first. You're a Christian who happens to do your occupation. You're a Christian who God has happened to place here. You're a Christian first. 
That's who you are. That's your identity first. Not out on the periphery. If you think of your life as a bullseye, Christ first is in, in right here, in the center, in the bullseye, and the other rings of that target can go out from there. And it's not him, not disciple-making out in the periphery. Oh yeah, disciple-making, that's what I do with my free time. Oh yeah, disciple-making, I do that one hour a week when I show up for X event that my church puts on. No, this is who I am and this is how I live my life first. The call then to be a disciple-maker is a call for you to stand up and say, follow me as I follow Christ. You're going to be the agent that God wants to use to bring the gospel to this lost person, to bring this new believer unto maturity in Christ. So how's that going to work? If you're not following Christ, obviously it's not. Dogs breed dogs, cats breed cats, horses breed horses. What you are is what you beget. (laughs) Are you a follower of Christ that you can say then, follow me as I follow Christ? Or ask yourself this question. This is a tough one, okay? This one will hit kind of hard. What if every other person in this room followed Jesus the same way I do? What would we end up with? What if every other person in my church followed Jesus the same way I do, with the same passion I do, with the same amount of obedience as I do? Would, other, would lost people be getting saved? Would young believers be growing to maturity in Christ? Would the group be characterized by integrity? by harmony in relationship with one another? Would it be characterized by edifying speech or by gossip? If every other person followed Jesus to the same degree that I do, I'm not trying to load you down with guilt. I'm trying to just help us all see that we are called to be those who will follow Christ and then be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. All right, skip the story because we're out of time here. Let me wrap this up. How do you know when your job of disciple-making another person's life is done? Well, in one sense, it's never done, is it? None of us achieve, arrive before glory. None of us are glorified right now. So in that sense, your job is never done. But in another sense, how do you know when that person has, has become mature in Christ? And I think so much of that would be answered in that question. Can, they, can you say, imitate me, watch their life? Are we at a point where I can say, imitate me, for this reason I'm sending to you, whoever my disciple is? Boy, what an indicator that would be of saying, here's a person who is, could we say, it, discipled, the description of a discipled believer. Isn't that something you do with guys? Something like that, Micah? Sending my disciple is just as good as going myself. Everything that I know about loving and serving Jesus, I've passed on to them. 
It's been transmitted. Let me end with the joy that I have, that others on the staff and the faculty have in watching this happen. Do you know what a joy it is to sit in ministry comp exams, which are going to start here really soon, and to hear students uh, on their own, not because we're prompt, you want to be a disciple maker, right? Could you please say it so I'll feel better? No, they, they're just, they have so taken on that character and that passion. They have a heart for disciple making. And you know where the proof is? It's in the pudding. They go out and they live it. They do it. There's such joy for us in watching NBC graduates scattering all over the place wherever God's wind sort of blows them and they land. And they begin investing in people so that they will grow to maturity in Christ wherever they go. That's joy. That's what keeps me going, probably some others going as well. It's happening. And I want you to know that you're part of it. It's happening to you. It's happening in you. It's happening through you. God is shaping you into the image of his son as followers of his that you may be able to say with a purpose that you may be able to say to others, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Watch Timothy. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we would just... um, stop right now to give you praise for the work that you're doing that we can see happening in our lives as we're being transformed. We praise you for those who've gone ahead of us, in front of us, and we can see the witness that's preserved in their lives of what you have accomplished in them. And we pray then for ourselves that we would grasp on to this calling that you've placed on our lives to be disciple makers and that we would never let go, that we would keep pressing on after you, following hard after you, that we can continually be saying to others, follow me. Thank you for that beautiful work in our lives and we thank you for the body of Christ that you've put around us and for the spirit your spirit that you've given us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.